when workers beat the fascists, how the left fought the anti-Semites at Cable Street. Cable Street 1936, when workers stopped the fascists, by Rua Carlyle. In October 1936, the workers of East London stopped police-protected fascists marching through the Jewish areas of East London. The Battle of Cable Street was an epic and is now a myth-enshrouded event in British working-class history. The far right is on the rise in many countries. The fight against fascism may once more be, become a matter of life and death to the labour movement. What lessons for this work can we learn from the anti-fascist struggle in East London? Did objective conditions and after 1934 establishment disprove, disapproval kill off Moselism? Or was it direct action on the streets? What are the lessons for today? The 1929 Wall Street crash lurched the world economy into chaos. Companies collapsed and millions of jobs were lost in the Great Depression, which then set in. In Britain too, conditions were severe, though not cataclysmic, as in Germany and the USA. The pound was taken off the gold standard in 1931, but in contrast to many private and state banks in other countries, the Bank of England was never in danger of collapse. British unemployment was high, peaking as 20 percent that's nearly four million people. Elsewhere, in the USA and Germany, for example, it was much higher. In May 1930, Sir Oswald Mosley, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, a Labour minister charged with helping to solve the mushrooming unemployment problem, and seen as a possible future party leader, made proposals that were radical for the time. When they rejected, he left the Labour Party to form a new party, Within two years, the new party, shedding some of its leaders, such as Don Strachey, had evolved into a fascist organisation. Mosley, the radical Labour MP, had become the Fuhrer of the British Union of Fascists. <clears throat> Britain's biggest ever fascist party was founded in October 1932. Mosley's economic proposals had been basically Keynesian. He thought that the best way out of the economic depression was reflation. The government should spend its way out of depression. The financial boost to the economy would have a positive knock-on effect. These ideas would be bourgeois economic orthodoxy ten years later. But in 1930, the establishment held traditional conventional view, demanding strict control of expenditure, deflation, and cuts in public services such as the dole, as many conventional economic views do again today. Mosey was thus opposed to what the ruling class saw as its best interests. Mosley Keynesian economics, who was by no means the only person to advocate these ideas, were also rejected by most of the Labour leadership. They thought it necessary to cut rather than spend. Despite the comparatively radical stance, Mosley at his best was an elitist reformer, an aristocrat who had come to Labour from the Tories. Uh, this section is accompanied by a photograph of three policemen carrying away a woman shouting. The caption says... The left-wing protesters at Cable Street fought the police to prevent them clearing a way for the fascists. Back to the article. Committed to old-style economics, the ruling class as a whole was certain to oppose Mosley, unless it felt, as had the German and, German and Italian establishment of Hitler and Mussolini, a need for fascism. The mainstream British establishment never came to that pass. However, there was indeed a small section of the establishment who fought as had the desperate liberal Giuliati in Italy and the Juncker monarchist von Schliele in Germany, that many 
they they may have a use for the fascists. Most notably is with the Tory press lords Rothermere and Camrose, the British Rupert Murdoch's of the day, part of the British sorry part of the Empire Free Trade faction of the Tory Party. They expected a major social crisis, and hoped to make the rabble rouser Mosley an auxiliary of the Tory Party. Their support for Mosley was in part a gambit in their factional war against the Conservative leader Stanley Baldwin. They made financial contributions to the British Union of Fascists, and more importantly, they gave it support in their newspapers. Notoriously, in Lord Rothermere's personally written front-page Daily Mail article and headline, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, on the 8th of January, 1934. They were keeping their options open. If the economy worsened worsened and social discontent grew, the fascists could be on hand to silence working-class protests by crushing the labour movement in the most brutal way. By late 1934, the BUF had lost this ruling class support. The explanation normally given is that they were horrified by Mosley's Olympia rally of June 1934, where dozens of anti-fascists were publicly beaten up by fascist stewards, while Mosley looked on. These atrocities were no different from numerous previous assaults by the fascists at BUF meetings, but Olympia was deliberate, deliberate, public display of savage violence, staged to impress an audience which included many MPs and other well-off middle-class and establishment figures with the ruthless efficiency of the BUF fascism. It had an opposite effect. It seemed gratuitous, and the BUF came to be seen as thugs. The Olympia took place at about the time of Hitler's Night of the Long Knives, in which the left-wing Nazis were slaughtered, and this increased the resonance. Mosley had demoted himself from serious politician to a gutter thug, or so the legend goes. But there were other reasons for people like Lord Rothermere to withdraw their support. Although the public atrocity at Olympia and the BUF's tentative but increasing anti-Semitism did much to alienate the once sizable establishment support, mostly they withdrew their support because now they felt confident they did not need Mosley. The economy was steadily improving by 1934, there was mass unemployment and devastation in some areas of the country, and there would be another slump in 1937, but the economic depression was not as bad as people had feared in the early 30s. Politically, too, the crisis of the early 1930s was resolved. The national government, under the nominal leadership of Ramsay MacDonald, but actually dominated by the Conservatives, had created and maintained relative political equilibrium. Rothermere, Camrose, and the car manufacturer, William Morris, the future Lord Nuffield, concluded that they were not going to need Mosley's fascists after all. They may or may not have been horrified by the fascist violence, but it felt that they needed the fascists then they would have stomached it, just as the imperial German politician Karl von Schlieffer was willing to stomach the Nazis. Writing to a friend in March 1932, he stated, quoting, I am really glad that there is a counterweight to the Social Democrats in the form of the Nazis, who are not very decent chaps either, and must be stomached with the greatest caution. If they did not exist, we should virtually have had to invent them. End quote. That is what Robermeer, Camrose and Morris and others would have said, if necessary, for them it did not prove necessary. The plebeians Hitler and Mussolini started on the political fringe, and with growing ruling class support, moved towards government, the aristocratic coxcomb, Mosley began in government and moved steadily towards the political fringes. The BUF began with seemingly great prospects and support of a number of national newspapers, 
and retreated to the margins of politics, becoming increasingly a movement of racist demagogues in the East End of London. Uh, there is a photograph here of the Olympia Rally, and captioned, At the BUF's Olympia Rally of June 1934, BUF stewards publicly beat up dozens of anti-fascists. Uh, it's, a, it's a large crowd um, surrounding what looks like a running track of some sort that is also seating people. Uh, back to the article. It was only in this period of relative decline that the BUF, known after 1936 as the British Union of Fascists and National Socialists, turned its attention to East London, and there built the only true mass base fascism ever built in Britain. It was as late as July 1934 that the first BUF East London branch was set up in Bow. It was in November of that year before the second East End branch was started. In the future stronghold of Bethnal Green. Yet they grew quickly and steadily until, by 1937, they were a powerful force in local government elections. After the defection of the newspaper barons and the end of the BUF's initial burst of support, the eastern branches of the BUF became, by spring 1936, the centre of BUF activity. Why? What was it about East London that focused BUF attention? The Jews of East London provided the fascists with a unique target. East End Jews were concentrated in small areas, in 1929, 43% of the national Jewish population was concentrated in Stepney alone. So too could the tax on them be geographically concentrated. Although its population had been declining from the turn of the century, East London in the 1930s was still one of the most densely populated areas in London. Shoreditch, Bethnal Green and Stepney were ranked as the second, third and fourth most populated of the London boroughs. The new Survey of London Life and Labour, found 18% of the people living in Shoreditch, 17.8% of the people in Bethnal Green, and 15.5% of Stepney living in poverty. In East London, there was none of the mass unemployment of the industrial north. Most had work, but it was insecure work, often in small factories, sweatshops prone to disruption and bankruptcy. Long pay, l low pay rather, long hours, and, pervase and a pervasive sense of insecurity for the lucky, hung lucky hunger and destitution for the rest. East London had been an immigrant gateway for centuries. In the 17th century, French Protestants, Huguenots, sought refuge there from Catholic persecution. The mid-19th century saw a big influx of Irish immigrants, and after 1881, when systematic programs set Russian and Polish Jews to begin their exodus to the West, large numbers of them settled in the East End, first in Whitechapel, then fanning out towards Stepney and Mile End. Anti-Jewish agitation, loud or muted, active or latent, had existed in the East End since the time of the first Jewish settlements. The Jews were a long an issue in the East End labour movement. Some labour leaders sometimes joined in agitation against the Jews, while others attacked the anti-Semites. In the early 20th century, the British Brothers League and Londoners League organised systematic anti-Semitic campaigning. Although those organisations declined after the passing of the 1905 Aliens Act, which restricted Jewish immigration, anti-Semitism had continued. In 1917, there were riots in Bethnal Green against recently arrived Jews who were not subject to conscription. And there is a photograph here of Oswald of Mosley dressed in a officer's uniform with an officer's cap uh, of his own design, uh, inspecting 
some of his street thugs uh, all giving him a Nazi salute. The caption reads, The former Labour minister, Oswald Mosley, formed the British Union of Fascists with a strong arm street fighting wing. In this whole period of British history, liberal humanitarianism did not have enough the authority it enjoys now. Bashing and stereotyping the Jews was a common part of social and literary discourse. For example, in 1920, Winston Churchill wrote, This Jewish and communist cons- worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstruction of society on the basis of arrested development has been steadily growing. Anti-Jewish prejudice was deeply ingrained, even on the left. The leading left-wing and anti-fascist periodical, The New Statesman, could, while condemning the BUF, write in 1936 of the conflicts of East London, the average poorest Jew has a different glandular and emotional makeup. Jews are often much more pushful. There is a widely spread, rough, rarely expressed, smouldering anti-Semitic resentment much resembling the feelings our native squirrel might have towards a great interloper. The shouted insults, window-breaking and beard-pulling to which the decent law-abiding but money-seeking at any price to other Jews have been subjected. End quote. It was a different pre-Holocaust world. The material basis for the East End anti-Jewish feeling was the discontent of the materially deprived and angry native, in uh, quote marks, population. Living side by side with a large number of immigrants and their descendants, whose cultural distinctiveness cast them easily in the role of scapegoat. All that was needed to make this resentful scapegoating error into an aggressive force was political formation, seeking to exploit anti-Semitism. Mostly, the ex-minister could speak louder than a traditional East End anti-Semite. What he said was not new, but it struck a strong chord in the East End. From its inception, the BUF had displayed fascists of anti-Semitism. In speeches and articles, some of its secondary leaders, such as William Joyce and A.K. Chesterton, showed themselves as hardcore anti-Semites. But Mosley himself, at first, showed signs of wanting to eschew extreme anti-Semitism. The British Nazi, Andrew Leese, of the Imperial Fascist League, dismissed Mosley as a kosher fascist. In 1934, anti-Semitism began, became central to both the BUS propaganda and its activities. Its turn to intense anti-Semitic campaigning after October 1934 was an outright declaration of war on the Jews. That was central to building up the BUF support in the East End. They had a profound effect, but they never captured the East End. The large Jewish minority, which provided them with the opportunity for scapegoating of winning grassroots supports, also, by its presence in the neighbourhoods and on the electoral roll, prevented them from winning control of whole districts and confined fascist local street dominance to smaller areas. The story later propagated by the Communist Party of an East End united against the anti-Semitic black shirts does not tally with the election results, nor do eyewitness accounts from people unconnected to the BUF of Mosley on informal evening walks through the streets surrounded by forests of armed raised in fascist salute. In the 1937 LCC elections, the fascists stood in Bethnal Green, Stepney and Shoreditch. They lost everywhere but proved the existence of a substantial body of support, coming second in Bethnal Green. In East, Len- in East London, rather, fascism set the agenda for political life. 
In school playgrounds, the game of cowboys and Indians was replaced with Jews, by Jews and black shirts. Streets, estates and patches were marked off as either fascist or anti-fascist, Jewish or communist or both, and were off limits to members of the other side. Indeed, for some time an unofficial state of warfare existed between the two factions. Such a conflict could not have been maintained without substantial local support for the fascists. It was against this background that, in, 19, in September 1936, Mosley announced that the BUF would march through the East End on the 4th of October. It was to be the biggest show of fascist strength ever, in their strongest area. It could have, been, it could have developed into a pogrom. For Jewish immigrants and the British-born families, refugees from persecution in Russia and Eastern Europe, it meant the Nazis were coming. After initial confusion, the Communist Party, the Independent Labour Party, together with Jewish anti-fascist organisations, prepared to do battle with the fascists and the police, the defenders of the fascists. Cable Street coincided with the siege of Madrid. The anti-fascists, overwhelmingly working class, painted the slogan, No Passeran, meaning they shall not pass, all over the East, East London, Lincoln Mosley's march with Franco's rebellion in Spain. They took the workers of Madrid as their model and inspiration. But would they be able to stop Mosley? Uh, on the side of this page, there is an insert called British Fascists, a timeline. March 1930, Mosley forms a new party. Half the members leave when Mosley likens the new party to the continental modern, in other words, fascist movements. April 1930, Ashton underlined by election. The new party splits Labour votes, allowing the Tories to win. Facing an angry post-result Labour crowd, Mosley says to John Strachey that this crowd has prevented anyone from doing anything since the war. June to July 1930, proposals for a fascist new party youth movement. New party militia, the Biff Boys, was organised supposedly to keep order at meetings and also to protect law and order in the event of a communist uprising. This is the beginning of the Black Shirts. October 1931, general election. National government, elected with a majority of 493, winning 554 seats of the 615. All but two of the 24 new party candidates lose their deposits. Even the Communist Party did better. December 1931, Mosley visits Mussolini, stands with him on a saluting base, or skybox as they were called, during a fascist parade. Summer 1932, wearing a black shirt uniforms and self-description as fascists introduced. 1st of October 1932, the British Union of Fascists formally launched. January 1933, the Nazis given power in Germany. Autumn 1933, First signs of BUF anti-Semitism. Summer 1934. BUF has grown to have 100 branches. The 8th of January 1934. Media magnate Lord Rothermere begins his campaign in support of the BUF. Hurrah for the black shirts is the Daily Mail's headline. The 7th of April 1934. BUF Olympia rally. Black shirts publicly beat up dozens of hecklers. Discussed a largely middle class audience, lose Rothermere's supports and are thereafter accurately identified with violence. 22nd of April 1934, first big BUF rally at the Albert Hall. September 1934, BUF rally in Hyde Park. 
October 1934, at Bellevue, Manchester, Mosley makes what amounted to a declaration of war against the Jews. Late 1934, British economy largely stabilised following the Depression. British Union of Fascists and National Socialists, the BUFNS, a renaming of the BUF, branches set up in Bethnal Green and Shoreditch. 1935, Mussolini invades Ethiopia. June 1935, BUFNS adopts Nazi leather uniforms. July 1936, Stephanie Green BUF branch set up. 4th of October 1936, the Battle of Cable Street. The 11th of October 1936, the Mile End Pogrom. The 1st of January 1937, Public Order Act bans political uniforms and increases police powers to ban marches. The 6th of March 1937, London County Council elections. BUF poll one-fifth of the vote in East London. Mid-1937, the BUF plunges into disputes. Leaders Beckett and Joyce, that's Lord Hawhorse, split, setting up the National Socialist League. October 1937, Battle of Bermondsey, mostly knocked out by a brick in Liverpool. March 1938, A.K. Chesterton leaves the BUF. July 1939, in accordance with their anti-war, pro-Nazi campaign, the BUF hold their last major event, a rally in Earl's Court which resembles the leather-clad pacifists' convention. September 1939, war begins, BU membership and optimism plummet. May 1940, Mosley nearly lynched at Middleton. BUF and other fascist group, act groups, active members interned. This is Workers' Liberty, Volume 3, Issue 69. This issue also counts as Solidarity, Number 528, published on the 11th of December, 2019. This is a revised edition of material which first appeared in Workers' Liberty, Number 35, October 1996. Returning to the article... The Labour Party and the trade union movement were against the fascists, but they also opposed direct action, physical force, to stop the activities. Unlike the Liberals, they instructed people to rely on the police to prevent disorder. But unlike the establishment, the Labour movement feared destruction at the hands of the Nazis, not just discomfort. Even those who opposed direct action helped arouse the working class. The Labour Party and TUC Research Department published many pamphlets and leaflets which compared the BUF to Italian and German fascism. This was no futile activity. Though it could not be could prevent fascist activities, the literature, along with meetings, created a climate of educated working-class opposition to the fascists, in the labour movement and in the broader working class. Thus, it helped prepare a united front in action between labour movement militants, revolutionary socialists and unaffiliated workers. In this climate, the working-class militant actionist opponents of fascism gained support for physical opposition, even from normally non-militant Labour Party and trade union members. Naturally, the, natural lead the national leaders of the Jewish community also opposed the fascists. In the area where the Jewish question was the very centre of politics, the attitude of the Jewish leadership and what to do about the fascist harassment was important. In 1936, the Board of Deputies set up a Jewish Defence Committee. Yet, though the Board vehemently opposed the fascists, it told East London Jews to rely on the police and on no account oppose the fascists physically. That the Jewish leadership insisted would only add fuel to the fires of anti-Semitism. 
Individual members of the British establishment were, of course, sympathetic to the BUF, or even its supporters. But the state, the civil servants, the police, the industrialists, all those elements of British society which held to the social status quo collectively condemned them. The government consistently opposed the fascists, and this too helped create a powerful climate of resistance to fascism on the ground. Yet the national government, with unconscious irony proclaiming itself custodian of the law and of traditional British liberties, found itself defending the fascists' right to free speech, and, in practice, championing their right to make life miserable for East London Jews. To many in the East End, in particular, to many Jews faced with fascist harassment, this was indistinguishable from government defence of the fascists as such. In practice, that's what it was. According to the East End Labour MP George Lansbury, it was widely believed in the East End that ordinary people would not have the same liberty as the fascists. The police were defending the right of people who aped Hitler, who waved his emblems and were relieved to be in receipt of his money to march through the Jewish area in a blatant attempt to terrorise Jews. The fascists would march through the markets, abusing the Jewish storeholders and kicking them. They would bellow anti-Semitic propaganda over loudhailers late at night in the Jewish areas and chalk foul abuse on the pavement outside Jewish shops, including the slogan PJ, which is Perish Judah. They assaulted and incited assaults on the Jews. In the Mile End Pogrom of October 1936, in the week after the Battle of Cable Street, Jewish shops had their windows broken, Jews were beaten in the street, and a preschool-aged girl and a woman were thrown through a plate glass window. The list of such incidents is enormous. In the context, the fascist right to free seat speech became something else. Police defending the right of the pogromists to spread terror in Jewish streets. Too many young Jews, political or not, and large numbers of Jews were members of the Communist Party, the Independent Labour Party, the Labour Party, and of Jewish left-wing groups like Hashem Hatzer and the Workmen's Circles. The proper response to fascists marching through Jewish areas was simple. Don't let them. Sign petitions, try to get the marches stopped, but if all else fails, collect the bricks and build the barricades. That was the attitude. It was in this climate that the ground was prepared for united action by anti-fascists, which stopped mostly at the Battle of Cable Street. Uh, on the following page is a collection of what looks like headlines and front pages from the newspapers Black Shirt and Action. Uh, I will read out a selection of the headlines here. Uh, Why are Jews disliked? Who is to blame for anti-Semitism? Rally to Mosley. British rights and Jewish interests. For Alien or for Britain? Real East London gives a smashing reply. Jury's biggest blunder. Simon Oakley surrenders to alien mobs. National socialism receives an immense impetus. Jews and Reds cause the trouble. Aliens or Britons? Shall British money go to Jews while Britons starve? For Britain, peace and people. No war for Jewish finance. The government that cannot govern. A surrender to communist Jewish violence. Barricades permitted but fascist banned. The caption to this collection reads, Was Mosley really an anti-Semite? 
One of the most idiotic of academic pseudo-debates was initiated around this question when Roman Skidelsky published a biography of Mosley in 1975. The merest acquaintance with BUF literature brands such a debate as unserious. In 1938, in a pamphlet outlining BUF's policy, Mosley said that he would, on coming to power, immediately deprive all British Jews of citizenship and deport all those considered undesirable. He wrote of Madagascar as a possible place to which the Jews could be exiled. So, at the time, did the German Nazis. Returning to the article. Two main organisations practised physical force opposition to the fascists were the Independent Labour Party and the Communist Party of Great Britain. And it was their activities, notably their part in the Battle of Cable Street, which most people today think of the opposite as the opposition to fascism and fascists. A Stalinist myth surrounds the Communist Party's role in the Battle of Cable Street. The, CB, the CP had a grand anti-fascist reputation, but an increasingly spurious one. Up to 1934, the fascist, the CP rather, had been in the throes of a Stalinist policy known as the Third Period, when, so they said, revolutions were just about to happen everywhere. This was nonsense, and in Germany led the CP to play into Hitler's hands. But it was meant, to, but it had meant that the British CP was willing to throw itself physically, as at Olympia in 1934, into fighting fascism perceived as the last-ditch defenders of dying capitalism. In 1936, this view had changed dramatically. The CP's central concern had become anti-fascism. They were the anti-fascist par excellence. In fact, anti-fascism meant opposition to Germany and support for USSR's foreign policy. To those whose interests the CP were subservient, it would alter its relationship to the fascists, as to everything else, in line with what the rulers of the USSR saw as their needs. Stalin was pursuing a policy of creating a democratic anti-fascist front of the USSR for the capitalist powers, France and Britain, against the German Nazis. The British CP, like CPs everywhere, was now advocating a popular front. This meant allying with non-working class organisations opposed to German fascism. And in Britain, by the late 1930s, this would include progressive Tories. The British CP was trying to gain respectability, aping mainstream politicians in the hope of allying with them. As a result, the CP did not always oppose Mosley militantly, because they feared that continued militancy would make it impossible to ally with respectable politicians. By 1936, they were shying away from physical confrontations. Abandoning class politics, they were more and more attracted to compete with the fascists as British nationalists, and even protectors of, the, protectors of religious free, freedom against the compulsory idolatry in Germany. They were loudest in a demanding blanket police bans on the fascists, and counterposed campaigning for bans to organising on the streets. That was their initial approach to what became the Battle of Cable Street. The Stalinist reputation as the foremost anti-fascist of the 1930s has been glamorised in history as a result of the CPs untruthfully taking almost all of the credits of the Battle of Cable Street. But the reality was different. The CP only threw their considerable weight behind the East End anti-fascist mobilisation when it was clear three days before that they had lost control of their own local members and sympathisers, who would follow the independent Labour Party's calls on workers to block the route of the fascist march. 
At first, they told workers not to oppose the fascists in the East End and instructed CP members to go to the embankment and then Trafalgar Square instead. Joe Jacobs, a local CP branch secretary who later broke with the party, was instructed by his superiors four days before the fascist march not to get involved and instead to build up for a demonstration miles away in Trafalgar Square in support of the Spanish Republic against the Spanish fascists. His instructions were clear. Keep order. No excuse to the government to say we, like BUF are hooligans. If Mosley decides to march, let him. Our biggest trouble tonight will be to keep order and discipline. So while the CP was to concentrate on demonstrating against foreign fascism, Britain's actual fascists were to be allowed to march through Jewish streets unopposed. In his posthumously published autobiography, Jacobs explains the reason for the eventual change of line very very clearly. The pressure from the people of Stepney, who went ahead with their own efforts to oppose Mosley, left no doubt in our minds that the CP would be finished in Stepney if this was allowed to go through as planned by our London leaders. Thus, as a result of the CP's effort to gain respectability, to better serve Russian state's foreign policy, and fascist mobilisations became disunited and less effective. After Cable Street, they continued on their course. At the July 1937 Mosley rally in Trafalgar Square, the CP refused to help block the way to Mosley, leaving the job to the ILP, along with some CP rank and filers disgusted with their own leadership. The CP issued ridiculous pseudo-patriotic literature reminiscent of the early 1930s German CP's suicidal attempt at mimicking the Nazis by way of, of national Bolshevism. The Independent Labour Party... Not the CP was the most consistently confrontational anti-fascist force in the East End and beyond. The ILP had been one of the early constituent organisations of the Labour Party. It split from the Labour Party in 1932, moving to the left. By 1936, the ILP, though it was still a hybrid political formation, in which bits of reformism, pacifism and revolutionary socialism were confusingly mixed, was much nearer to being a communist party in the old sense, the word, than the official communist party was. Some of its members were Trotskyists. The IOP broke up fascist meetings by way of massing opposition, heckling and fighting. The barred fascist processions organised petitions and defended Jewish areas, particularly in in the East End, from attack. And of course... Not only political action, fascist, not only political anti-fascists were involved. The Jewish community had its own ex-servicemen's anti-fascist militia, the Blue and White Shirts. British Jews, branching out from their orthodox background, were often attracted to revolutionary politics, many joining the CP. There were also, however, many smaller local anti-fascist bodies. On the 4th of November, the thousand-strong Black Shirt March was to begin in Royal Mint Street, passed along through Gardens Corner, Nattisopper Whitechapel Road, and onto four separate street meetings in Shoreditch, Limehouse, Bow and Bethnal Green. It never got going. The march was stopped dead. As many as a quarter of a million people, East Londoners and outsiders, jammed Gardners Corner. Only an army would have cleared the way for the black-shirted thugs. An army of police tried and failed. Tram drivers abandoned their vehicles in the middle of the road. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Philip Game, had drafted in a third of London police force 6,000 policemen, the whole of the Mounted Division, 
and had a primitive helicopter, that's called a gyroscope, flying overhead. Despite these forces, which made numerous charges of the anti-fascist crowd, breaking many heads, no thoroughfare for the flashes could be cut. This is accompanied by two photographs, one with some men lounging on a bench, and another with two very well-dressed men. Uh, the captions read, This remarkable 1926 picture shows Mosley Wright, the future fascist leader, with Fenner Brockway, centre, secretary for the ALP throughout the 1930s, and John Strachey, who would go with Mosley into the new party, and then, breaking with him when he turned fascist, be leading Stalinist propagandists throughout the 30s. After the Hitler-Stalin pact, Strachey switched from justifying Stalin's atrocities to doing public relation works for the IAF, public relation work for the RAF, for Obama Harris and his obliteration raids on German civilian targets. Strachey was a minister in the 1945 Labour government. And Oswald Mosley left with John Strachey. There are then some, on the following page, some copies of newspaper front pages and what looks like a poster or two. Uh, the They are all from the Daily Worker. And the headlines read, Move to the Stop the Black Shirt Demonstration. Youth at the Square, Big Preparations for Sunday Demonstration. East End Rallies Against Fascism, Prepares to Answer Mosley's March, Four Mayors Protest. Save the East End from... East End of London from fascism, throng into the streets, and all out against fascism. The caption for these reads, The Stalinist daily work has started, top left, by calling on all anti-fascists to rally at the embankment at March Trafalgar Square. Youth at the Square, it says. On the day when the fascists planned to march on East London. Only at the last minute did they follow where East London workers and the IOP led. See, youth meat transferred and the map giving a new assembly point, left an overprinted leaflet right. The police commissioner then proposed a diversion through the dock area, around Wapping and along Cable Street. There, a virtual war was fought between the police and the defenders of the anti-fascist blockades. British, Irish and some of the Somali dockers fought the police. The anti-fascist barricade was constructed of furniture, paving stones and a lorry. Pretending to retreat, the anti-fascists lured the police forward, and took up positions behind secondary barricades, or from upstairs tenements on either side of the street, other anti-fascists threw bricks, stones and bottles, marbles for horses' hooves, and boiling water down on the bewildered police. While the outnumbered and powerless fascist heroes waited in vain for the path to be cleared for them, the police faced chaos. While rare in British street battles, stray policemen were taken prisoner by the barricaders, for those moments, the rule of the British East State in East London was suspended. At about 5pm, after a three-hour battle, the Commissioner said to Sir Oswald Mosley that he would no longer be held responsible for the safety of the fascists. Speaking as one night to another, he said, If you go ahead, sir, it will be shambles. The beaten police cancelled the fascist march and sent them off to embankment. They did not pass. The lessons of Cable Street. Yet the reaction in the pro-fascist areas of East London to the fascist political defeat at Cable Street did not everywhere produce the atmosphere of the CPR, later MP, Phil Pitron depicted in Our Flag Stays Red, of disgusted BUF res residents tearing up the membership cards. MI5 reported to the Home Office that as many as 2,000 people, many, no doubt, transient recruits, joined the BUF in the East London after Cable Street. 
However, despite its distortion by later Stalinist historians and propagandists, Cable Street was a tremendously important thing. It was a great morale booster for the hard-pressed East London Jews and for all anti-fascists. While an open war, perceived as the working class versus fascism, was raging abroad in Spain, in London, workers translating fascist anti Spanish anti-fascist slogans, no pass around, into English as they shall not pass, had indeed beaten back the fascists. In East London, they had not passed. The fact that the fascists and anti-fascists never came to blows, the street wars entirely between anti-fascists and police, or that the effect of fascist recruitment was favourable for, for them, was irrelevant to Cable Street's potent political symbolism. Cable Street entered working-class legend. It is rightly remembered as something that the working class and its allies won against the combined might of the state and the fascists. Any discussion of how well or badly the BUF did must judge it both from a national and local perspective. Nationally, the fascists were an utter failure. The broad opposition to the fascists, the mainstream establishment after 1934, as well as the labour movement, in combination with the relative economic improvement in Britain, blocked off short-term BUF prospects of taking power. After 1936, the BUF tended to be the sort of foreign legion for Berlin that the Stalinist CP was for Moscow. If the immediate pre-war period, it grew easily. Its biggest ever rally occurred in July 1939. It was as a peace movement. In local terms, in East London, however, the fascist failure was a qualified one. Here, even after the defeat at Cable Street, they achieved and sustained a mass base of support, which if, I could, which if could have been repeated elsewhere, would have given them major political weight and at least the possibility of power. They polled a fifth of the vote in three districts in the 1937 London County Council election. On being told this, mostly is said to have shouted, Better than Hitler! Explaining later that four years prior to gaining power, Hitler had consistently polled under 20%. Of course, Hitler achieved that all over Germany, whereas Mosley only managed one-fifth of the vote in three of the most favourable districts in London. Yet, if war had not come, the East End might have been a base from which fascism could have expanded, had the ruling class again felt the need for them. As Rovermeer had before, 1934, East London would have been a strong base for them to expand. Uh, there are then here a cartoon of a man being whacked off of Nelson's column. A headline from the newspaper Blackshirt reading Reds and Pinks reduced to Divering and some photographs of the blockades. Uh, the caption for all of this reads When the BUF marched to Trafalgar Square, the Stalinists left it to the Labour Party to oppose them and appeal to British nationalism against them. Trafalgar Square? Nelson? The cartoon above and the quotation appeared in the Daily Worker and in a pamphlet for mass distribution. Having abandoned class politics, the Stalinists then reached inspired heights of idiocy, competing with the fascists on British nationalist grounds. In both cases, it was a pseudo-nationalism. If the CP was the conduit for Russian propaganda, by the late 1930s the BUF had a similar relationship with Germany. Blackshirt, the BUF paper directed at working class people, sneered at the Stalinists. There was a time when we imagined the Communist Party to have rather more courage than their social democratic friends. Whatever may have been the truth of this in the past, let it be understood that at the present, the communists are the biggest squealers of the lot. Finding it impossible to frighten National Socialism off the streets by calculated terrorism, they have now joined the miserable crew who hawk around petitions demanding that British Union meetings should be banned before they start. They shake in their shoes at the thought of Mosley's steadfast advance. 
A.K. Chesterton, the writer of the article, was a hardcore anti-Semite who lived to help found the National Front in the 1960s. And for the photographs it reads, Cops charge anti-fascist crowds with batons. Still, they are unable to clear a way for the fascists. There are then two further photographs on the next page. Uh, one of a very, very large crowd in the streets, and the second of uh, a large number of policemen, mostly mounted on horses, carrying off a man uh, down in the street. Uh, carrying on with the article. It has been plausibly argued that Mosley captured the support of large numbers of non-Jewish youth, and had they been old enough to vote, he might have won the Bethnal Green Council seat. Given the intensity of the opposition mobilised against them, these fascist gains were remarkable. The Battle of Cable Street led directly to the Public Order Act. Rushed through the House of Commons, it became law on the 1st of January 1937. The Public Order Act is often and falsely seen by reformists as a significant hindrance to fascists, and by some as the thing that finally killed off Mosleyism. This is an illusion. The Act banned political uniforms, gave the police added powers to ban marches at will, and strengthened laws against racist abuse. Though it was an annoyance to the fascists, the act did not cripple them, and did not finish them off as some too legalistic interpretations of its effects seems to suggest. It may have deprived the now plainly clothed fascists of some black shirt uniformed glamour and prestige. A handful of anti-Semitic speakers were indeed arrested and charged, where before the, the police had defended free speech, and thus the fascists, now they took the role of regulating and supervising them, within more restrictive laws. Yet the POA was a broad blanket measure, designed more to help the police control left-wing opposition movements. For example, the huger marches, and then suppressing then for suppressing the BUF. For decades after Mosleyism had vanished down the great sewer of history, the POA was being used against the labour movement. The POA did nothing to stop anti-Jewish harassment, despite a few prosecutions did not even stop the large-scale violence. On the 3rd of October 1937, there was great violence when the Moseyites, no longer black-shirted, tried to march through Bermondsey, South London. Despite appeals by Dr Salter, the much-respected local Labour MP to let the fascists pass and protect their free speech, local people erected barricades, and there was serious fighting, not far from the scale of Cable Street. The Public Order Act did not quell the BUF, any more than the banning of Nazi uniforms at one point quelled Hitler. If it appears so in retrospect, that is only because the BUF went into decline soon afterwards. The POA played a, at best a secondary and conditional role in that decline. Uh, there's then a photograph here of the police uh, dismantling a barricade, and then a cartoon of a Jewish-looking man carrying a torch which reads revolution and a bucket with a star of david called corruption uh being grabbed by a black shirted arm with a swastika union flag armband the caption from this cartoon reads wherever a jew is found found out and punished he raises the cry of persecution uh, the caption that we've added to this reads the Mosley Arts after 1934 built on a long tradition of anti-Semitic agitation, especially London's East End, by groups such as Arnold Lease's Imperial Fascist League. The cartoon above is one of the number perceived in, number in a police files that are now publicly accessible, most of them so vile that they are unreproducible. 
There was also lower level anti-Semitic agitation in the mainstream press. Take, for example, the East End London Hackney Gazette of the 2nd of October 1936, commenting on a Jewish petition to the government to stop British Hitlerites marching through their community. The fascist marches, Jews, tactless petition. The fascists proposed to hold an anniversary rally on Sunday afternoon next, and to afterwards march through the East End and conduct open-air meetings at four different points. The Jewish People's Council Against Fascism and Anti-Semitism has organised a petition to be presented to the Home Secretary today, urging that the proceedings should be banned. Such a request is stupid and tactless. Jews who enjoy more freedom and rights than their fellows in any other land ought to at least attempt to deny the nationals of the country which gave them those privileges. End quote. Much anti-Semitic agitation then, like the cartoon, focused on the images of Jews as revolutionaries and disruptors. The new anti-Semitism influential today, in parts of the left, instead emphasises complementary themes. Jews as Rothschilds, as uh, Praetorians of the conservative establishment, or now as Zionists, Praetorians of imperialism. Uh, continuing with the article, which was proved to be an effective method of fighting fascism, direct action as advanced by the ALP and the Trotskyists, or the policy of, of reliance on the police advocated by the LP, the CP, and the trade union leaders. On the ground, it is virtually certain, insofar as the fascist actions were curbed and protection provided for the Jews, that the effective action taken against the BUF was that the local people, labour movement activists, and their supporters from outside. In fact, as we have seen, the POEA itself was the product of militant anti-fascist action. Street Action Force authorities, who had at Cable Street tried to assert the right of the pogromists to march into the Jewish ghetto to go through the motions of curbing them. The truth is that in the East End, despite the POA, a legal fascist harassment of the Jews continued. The BUF was not destroyed until war forced the state to suppress it in late May 1940 as a Hitlerite agency. Though the fascists did well in the areas, Sustaining a fear of the pogroms against the Jewish population by continued harassment and virtual terrorism. They never came close to physically outnumbering their opponents, and without police protection, there would be marchers, if they had attempted to march, would have been scattered and many of them possibly lynched. Their need for police defence was an indication of the fascist weakness against the Red Rabble when it came into action. Contrast Britain and Germany, and you see clearly the objective reason why the British fascism failed at a national level. In Germany, the choice was communism or fascism. In Germany, economic collapse led to political collapse, which effectively, by 1930, even before Hitler, marked the death of the country's fledgling republican constitution. The harsh social conditions polarised politics and society. In Britain, after the crisis of 1931 and the creation of the so-called national government, the centre ground in the politics held. The political bloc prevented serious political disturbance in the 1930s. Though basically conservative, it played a roughly similar role to that of the Weimar Center Klo coalition, which had ensured the German Republic's survival through the economic crisis of the 1920s. In retrospect, it can be seen that the broad national government, the establishment, had found the effective bourgeois solution to Britain's political crisis. One year before the BUF was founded, in the general election of autumn 1931, the Labour Party was reduced to under 50 seats, fewer than 1918. For the things that have developed along radically different lines, the vast unrest would have 
needed to destabilize Britain politically. Nothing like that happened. After the crisis of 1931-1932, objected conditions slowly turned unfavorable to, unfavorable to fascism. The ruling class did not feel threatened. The British establishment simply didn't meet, need the fascists. The fundamental determining factors in the BUF's political importance, impotence rather, were that economic conditions and political relations built on them did not favour radical bourgeois revolution in Britain. Nevertheless, the actions of fascism, fascist opponents never helped the, the danger it did to the labour movement, damage it did to the labour movement and to the Jewish communities. Despite official opposition to the labour parties and trade unions to a united front against fascism and a denunciation of any fascist direct action, Members of the Labour Party and trade unions often, as we have seen, acted locally in unison with the CP and Jewish militant anti-fascists, enlarging the physical opposition. As well as that, the denial of halls, private and public, for meetings and the prohibition of loudspeakers in parks enforced by many Labour councils did great damage to the fascists, who, by 1939-1940, reduced to appealing in their press for rooms. The BUF's relative success in the East End only highlights their manifest failure to create a mass movement anywhere else. In the 1930s, East End, their message had tapped into an ex exceptionally favourable conditions. Essentially similar conditions allowed fascism to be a force in the East End in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, with the revival of predominantly anti-Asian political and street racism, organised by the National Front in the 1970s and then the British National Party. These fascists thrive in the same social conditions which provided the BUF with their unique mass base in the East End, as a chronic poverty, an influx of distinctive and equally poverty-stricken immigrants, and an underlying racist culture. The great lesson for today is that the determination of the labour movement and Jewish community limited the effects of BUF terror and opened the prospects of defeating the BUF, irrespective of what the establishment did, including the labour movement establishment. Fascist opponents, IOP, Communist Party and the Labour Party, took note of the recent European history and learned the lessons from the defeats by fascism of foreign labour movements. Their attitude to fascism was, catch it young and kill it quick. This was vitally important then, it is no less important now. The Second World War was really finished, really finished off the BUF. 800 fascists were interned. Now fascist, fascism abroad was the foreign enemy. The BUF was increasingly viewed publicly as a merely a satellite of the Nazis. They were now, incontrovertibly, un-British, an accusation which killed them. Mosey was seen, if Britain should fall, as an aspirate English stooge for, stooge for Hitler. The would-be British nationalist hero had turned into a quizzling in waiting. Hell roast him. Read more at workersliberty.org Leon Trotsky on Fascism Hatred and despair against the proletariat. Magnates of finance capital are unable by force alone to cope with the proletariat. They need the support of the petty bourgeoisie. For, the purposes, for this purpose, it must be whipped up, put on its feet, mobilised, armed. But this method has its dangers. While it makes use of fascism, the bourgeoisie nevertheless fears it. Under the conditions of capitalist disintegration, and the impasse of the economic situation, the petty bourgeoisie strives, seeks and attempts to tear itself loose from the fetters of the old masters and ruthless societies. It is quite capable of linking up its fate with that of the proletariat. For that, 
Only one thing it is needed is needed. The petty bourgeoisie must acquire faith in the ability of the proletariat to lead social society on a new road. The proletariat can inspire the faith only by its strength, by the firmness of its actions, by skillful offensive against the enemy, by the success of its revolutionary policy. But woe if the revolutionary party does not measure up to the height of the situation. The revolutionary party, in spite of the class struggle becoming increased incessantly rather more accentuated, proves time and time again to be incapable of uniting the working class about it. If it facilitates, becomes confused and contradicts itself, then the petty bourgeoisie loses patience and begins to look upon the revolutionary workers as those responsible for its own misery. All the bourgeois parties, including social democracy, turn its thoughts into this very direction. When the social crisis takes on the intolerable acuteness, a particular party appears on the scene with the direct aim of agitating the petty bourgeoisie to a white heat and of directing its hatred against the despair against the proletariat. Uh, this quote is from The Only Road for Germany, September 1932. For the Workers' United Front, no matter how true it is that social democracy, by its own, by its whole policy, prepared blossoming of fascism, it is no less true that fascism comes forward as a deadly threat primarily to that same social democracy, all of whose magnificence is inextricably bound to the parliamentary democratic pacifist forms and methods of government. The policy of the United Front of the workers against fascism flows from a situation. It opens up the tremendous possibilities to the Communist Party. The social crisis will inevitably produce deep, deep cleavages within social democracy. The radicalization of the masses will affect the social democrats. We will inevitably have to make agreements with the various social democratic organizers and factions against fascism, putting definite conditions and disconnection to the leaders before the eyes of the masses. We must return from empty official phrases around the United Front to the political policy of the United Front, as it was formulated by Lenin and always applied by the Bolsheviks in 1917. This is from the turn in the Communist International and the German Situation, published in 1930. Note to state bans. The struggle against fascism, the defence of the positions of the working class, as one within the framework of degenerating democracy, can become a powerful reality, since it gives the working class the opportunity to prepare itself the sharpest struggles and partially to arm itself to mobilise the proletariat and the petty bourgeoisie on the side of revolution, the creator workers' militia and so on. Anyone who does not take advantage of this situation, who calls the state, in other words the class enemy, to act, in effect sells the proletariat's hide to the Bonapartist reaction. Therefore, we must vote against all measures that strengthen the capitalist Bonapartist state, even those measures which may, for the moment, cause temporary unpleasantness for the fascists. We have to take strong measures against the abstract anti-fascist mood, mode rather, of thinking, that finds entry even into our own ranks at times. Anti-fascism is nothing, an empty concept used to cover up Stalin Stalinist skullduggery. This is from The Bourgeois Democracy and the Fight Against Fascism, published in Writings, 1935-36. Bonapartist here means dictatorial, authoritarian. Uh, this selection here is... Um, accompanied by a photograph of workers apparently running from a blockade. The caption reads, Anti-fascist retreating as police attack a barricade in the Battle of Cable Street. 
This has been produced by Workers' Liberty. Subscribe online at www.workersliberty.org forward slash sub sub. You can contact us by telephone on 020 7394 8923, that is 020-7394-8923, or email us at solidarity at workersliberty.org. Or you can write to us at 20E Tower Workshops, Riley Road, London, SE1 3DG. The print edition is printed by Reach PLC. Thank you for listening.